There was a professor up in Canada. His name was Dr. Stephen Anderson. He was in Ontario, or is in Ontario. He was teaching a senior philosophy class. It was an ethics class. And he was trying to find a baseline for his class on moral convictions as to would they draw the line in anywhere determining if something was immoral and they would take a stand on it. He showed them a picture of uh, Bibi Aisha. And uh, she was a young lady a number of years ago. You might have remembered the story. She was a young teenager. She was married to a Taliban warrior. She uh, did not live in a house. He kept her out with his animals. That's where she slept. And uh, it was horribly abusive. And so she tried to escape. She made her way out. Her family members caught her. They brought her back. They cut her nose off, cut her ears off, and sent her out into the mountains to die. She was rescued and she didn't die. And she was captured, brought to Westerners, and she lived. In showing this picture to uh, a number of his students, he was asking them the question, is this wrong what they did to her. He fully anticipated, absolutely anticipated that the students in his class would rise up in a just complete horrific anger. What he wasn't prepared for was their response. His class responded and they said things like, well, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay. Another said, it's just wrong to judge another culture. In interacting with his students, Dr. Anderson said, how can kids so based in minority rights be so numb to a moral offense that seems so obvious? How can that happen? How can they look at something that just seems so obvious to him and come to the conclusion where across the board, not one student in his class was willing to say publicly, that is a moral disgrace. When Paul was writing to his church, he came to the same place. And really, in some ways, it's where we're at today. It's called moral relativism. It's the inability of a people group or of an individual to be able to draw the line in the sand and say, that behavior is wrong. But worse, in Paul's case... They were not only not just silent about it, Paul says, they were bragging about it. They were proud. They were going to the wedding. He was not only having sex with his mom, they threw a party. They were excited about it. In fact, they were were kind of like, hey, we're so open here. We're so advanced. We're so progressive. Guy's having sex with his mom. Hey, that's fine. You know, whatever you want to do, we're not going to judge. 
Anderson went on to cite that some of the students in his class even used the Bible. They quoted the text of scripture that says, judge not or you will be judged. They used the very scriptures to silence anyone that would say that to cut off a young teenage girl's nose and to cut off her ears and to send her out into the village, into the mountains to die, they used the Bible somehow to justify that that was okay. Paul, writing to this church, says to them, My friends, not only are you not saying anything about this young man who's committing incest, but you're proud of it. You're bragging about it. Something's wrong. Now, this is not an easy thing to deal with. This gets really personal. And if today is anything like last night and anything like the first service, I I usually get a lot of emails, but never when I go home on a Saturday night do I have five emails already in my box. But this is tough. It's hard stuff. And it's not that they were mad. It's just that they're facing really difficult things. This passage makes us face really, really hard, hard things. It gets very personal. It's about our family. It's about our church. And what if causes us to face is what do I do with a person who claims to be a believer, who claims to be a follower of Christ, and yet is walking in complete rejection of the word of God and in defiance of the word of God? What do I do with this person who claims to be a Christian and yet is openly living in sin? How do I relate to them? What do I say? How do I handle it in the body of Christ? How do I handle it in my family? Do I say something? Do I try and keep a bridge? It gets difficult. Because sometimes I actually may relate, at least from this scripture passage, differently to a person who claims to be a believer versus a person who doesn't claim to be a believer doing the same behavior. And it seems almost hypocritical and kind of confusing on the inside because it's like they're doing the same thing, but I'm supposed to behave differently? Lord, uh, what's the basis for that? Paul has instructions for us. They're not easy to hear, but they're important to hear. And he gives us reason why that we must courageously love people who are claiming to be followers of Christ and yet walking in sin. And thankfully, he begins not with what you must do or say to them. He begins with us. He says... That a man is with his father's wife. We don't know if the father's still alive. Quite possibly he died. We don't know if the man is sleeping with his biological mother. Most likely not. I, I would imagine that he is sleeping with his stepmother. 
Um, in, in, if you go back to the Old Testament, if uh, a man marries a woman, it, it is to be considered that young man's mother by all standards. And if this young man sleeps with that woman, he is considered to have practiced incest. It is immoral, it is wrong, it is forbidden. And that's what Paul suggests that is going on. And he says that this man is having or sleeping with his father's wife. And he says it is an immorality that is of the kind that does not even occur among the pagans. In other words, Paul is saying, you guys are so tragically sinful, you're worse than Vegas. Worse than Vegas. You're worse than this, what's going on down in what is known as the bad parts of town. And here's the real problem, he says, and you're proud. Rather, shouldn't you be filled with grief? Where do we begin in this process of what do we do or what do we say? How do we respond to a believer who is walking in unrepentant Sin. And Paul says, You begin with mourning. You begin with mourning. That's what he says. You shouldn't be proud. You should be filled with grief. You should be filled with absolute grief. You should be weeping. You should be mourning if you understood what's going on. What is it? Number one is that the person that you love is actually bringing destruction upon themselves. They are quenching the power of the Holy Spirit. They are seizing up the flow of God in their life. They're bringing the discipline of God. They're inviting the correction of God. They're bringing the heavy hand of God on them. They're inviting God to bring his disposition, his hand, his discipline, his correction against them. They're inviting God to bring his corrective nature against their very life. That's destruction. David describes it so well in Psalm 32. When he's describing his life in sin against the father, he says, God, my bones were wasting away. I don't think he was speaking metaphorically. I think that's actually happening. Now be careful. I don't want you to go up to the hospital and think that every person up there that's aching and dying or something's happening is they're there because of sin. There's not a law of linearity that make these two connective pieces come together. But the fact is, is when you are walking in sin and it's unrepentant sin, we're not talking about the person who's struggling with sin and repentant over it. We're not talking about the person who is struggling and wants victory over it, who is sorrowful over it. We're talking about the person who is proud of it, who is exercising their freedom and kind of defiance against God and saying, you know what? I don't have to live under the fundamentalist Baptist kind of stuff. I don't have to live under the scriptures. I can walk under the freedom and the grace of God. I am free to live the way I want to live. No, it's the person who says, you guys can live whatever rules you want. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I can drink whatever I want to drink. If I want to get drunk, I can get drunk. It's the person who rejects the word of God. Not the person who struggles under and is sorrowful and repentant. That person is bringing destruction upon themselves. David says, my bones were wasting away. 
literally his body was experiencing the heaviness of God against him. He goes on to say in Psalm 32, not only was his bones wasting away, but the hand of God was heavy against him and his strength was being zapped. I'm absolutely convinced that there are people who organically struggle with depression. I'm also convinced that there are people who relationally and sinfully struggle with depression. The part of the depression... There are a lot of different sources and rivers, if you will, into depression. But I think that there are some folks that their energy zapped. The fact is, they just don't have any energy. They're, they're just, they're down. They're depressed. They're, they have no energy. They have no drive. They have no ambition. They have no joy. And part of the reason David suggests in Psalm 32 and others is because the heavy hand of God is against them. And they wake up and there's no joy in their life. Why? Because God is stripping it out of their Because they've been rejecting God and they've been walking against God's hand and they have been defying God. And when that happens, God's not, if he loves them, God's not going to let them freely go and dismiss them. If God loves them and they're actually God's child, they are born of the spirit, but they're rejecting God, walking in defiance of God. Uh, My stars, God is not going to say, ah, don't worry about it. Just go and live your life. I don't care about you. Of course, God's not going to do that. He loves them. They're his child. But my friends, if you love them and you see this destruction being brought upon them, you should mourn. In fact, I would go as far as to say if you don't mourn, you're probably not the person to bring correction. If you can go and bring correction to a person and you don't mourn, I'm not sure you're the right person to bring correction. Because if your heart's not moved with tears, and if you're not really moved with mourning, then probably your words of correction are going to be brought, are going to be received more as judgmentalism than they are as the hope of reconciliation and restoration. Secondly, Paul says that the person we love is eroding the foundation of the church. I want you to look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Again, we're not talking about a person like all of us in here who have periodically sinned, a person who's struggling, a person who's, you know, repentant, and a person who's periodically, God, I blew it again, and the Lord says, yep, I'm going to restore you. No, we're talking about a person who is in defiance, a person who is rebellious, a person who is not responding at all to correction. That person is going to spread something throughout the church that is going to bring destruction. My brother served in the military and he, uh, he was called up. He served 11 years active and then he went into the reserves and he got called up to go to Iraq. He served two different tours over there and they were going to offer him to come home in the middle uh, to come home and see his family, but he didn't come home. And I, I actually didn't understand it. I was like, dude, I mean, come on home. It's halftime. You know, get a break. 
the first time, first half when he was over there, he, um, uh, he was one of his best friends got blown up right in front of him. I didn't understand it. He wouldn't come home. He just kind of knuckled down and stayed there. And when he came home, I was with him and I said, man, why didn't you come home? And he goes, have you ever heard of AWOL? I said, yeah. And he goes, if I would have got on that plane and come home, the likelihood that I would have gone AWOL is pretty high. He said, you know what? He says, I was afraid that if I would have come home, I wouldn't have got back on that plane and wouldn't have gone back over there. Then they would have arrested me and then I'd be in prison and I wouldn't be any good to my family. Because, you know, away without leave, you know, kind of like uh, without permission, the military says you can't do that. Why do they do that? Because they have to have the stability of the military. And they have to know that they can count on you to show up. Because they don't want military personnel, soldiers going, hey, you know what? I don't want to go to Iraq this week. I I don't want to go to uh, Afghanistan right now. Uh, what we're doing in, you know, Ukraine, uh-uh, not, not for me. They don't give you that option. Why? Because they know that if they have selective service, there's going to be an infection that occurs. And so they say, you know what? You, you can't selectively choose in and out. And Paul's point is, is if we don't address a person who is knowingly, personally, perpetually living in rebellion against God, he is going to infect the entire body and he's going to bring a fracture to the foundation of the church. That's what he's saying in verse 6. Your boasting's not good, friends. Don't you know that a little yeast is going to work throughout the whole batch of dough. And the next thing you know, that whole batch is going to be rotten. That's why you have to address it. You don't have an option. And the third reason you need to mourn is because the person we love is discrediting the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 7, he says, get rid of the old yeast that you may... Be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast. What's Paul's point? It's this. When Christ died for you, what happened? He died for your sin that you might not experience and face the penalty of your sin, which is what? Death. But it's more than that. He died so that you might not face the mastery of sin. He died so that you might experience freedom from the ownership of sin. What's the conclusion? Not just that you are freed from the penalty of sin. You don't go to hell. But you are freed from the mastery and ownership of sin so that you don't have to sin, so that you're not under the direction of sin. And here's the point Paul's saying is, my friends, if you live your life and you are no different than the streets, in fact, you're worse than the pagans. Here's what the pagans are going to (laughs) say. Why trust Jesus? Why follow Jesus? 
What good does the cross of Christ do? You guys live worse than us. And Paul's point is, you ought to mourn. Because this man is discrediting the cross of Christ. He's discrediting the name of Jesus. He's destroying himself. He's bringing a fracture to the church. And he's discrediting the name of Christ. And you're throwing a party for this guy when you should be weeping for him. What's wrong with you? What's wrong? Is there no line in the sand of which you might say to someone, man, this is not right. You're hurting yourself. You really are. You're bringing destruction to your life. You're bringing poison into your own body. And you're fracturing the body of Christ. You're bringing uh, a leaven into the body of Christ and you're going to hurt the body of Christ. And maybe worse, you're discrediting the name of Jesus. I beg you, turn around. There's a need to mourn. And when you've done that, there's a need to judge and possibly purge. Paul goes on to say, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, verse 3, and I've already passed judgment on the one who's done this, just as if I were present. And when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, I want you to hand this man over to Satan. Those are heavy words, so they are. So let's dig into them. What does he mean? He says, first of all, I want you to gather in the name of Jesus and bring a judgment. Bring a judgment upon this man. What would that look like? Might it be that what Paul is saying is, is I want you to align with the spirit and the practice of Christ And where is he thinking? I think he's possibly looking back at Matthew 18, where Christ has given us instruction as to what to do with a brother or a sister that is trapped in sin. What's happened is in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 verses is the focal point where a person is caught in sin and it says, bring the weight that you need to bring to bring about the desired result. What's the desired result? Paul's already told us in this passage what the desired result is. Let's look at it again and remind ourselves. Verse 5. I want you to hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul says, I am more than willing to confront this man, to even put him out under the authority and penalty of Satan so that at the end of the day he might be saved. Paul says, I will risk this man hating me for a season so that he can love me in all eternity. I'll run that risk. In Matthew chapter 18, when you gather in Jesus' name, when you walk in alignment with Christ's instructions, Jesus says, when you find a brother or a sister that is caught in sin, you go 
first of all, by yourself. You don't call the prayer chain. You don't call a friend and say, hey, I'm going to go talk to a person. Would you pray? No, you don't. The second you call another person and ask for them to pray, you've stepped out of the grounds of Christ and you're in sin. You don't do that. Why? Because the principle is you keep it as small as possible. You only bear the weight that you need to bring about the desired restoration of this person to Christ. You're not trying to restore them to you. You're trying to restore them to Christ. You go and you have a conversation with this person. My dear friend, man... Are you sleeping with your girlfriend? I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to say I'm an angel. I'm not here to say I'm sinless. I'm not here to say I'm, I, I'm, I'm here with a stone. I'm here to say, are you sleeping with your girlfriend? Are you snoring cocaine? Are you selling cocaine out of the back of your house? Because you're putting your family at risk. Is it true? What's going on? Just tell me. I'm not here to turn you in. I'm here to fight for you. I love you. You go by yourself. You give that person the opportunity to connect to you, to see you as a friend who's there to restore that person and to reconnect that person to Christ. You don't go with a heavy crowd. You're not there as a policeman. You're not there as a detective from the church. You're there as a brother or a sister in Christ. You're trying to restore them to Christ and you're willing to risk, yes, you're willing to risk their anger at you for the restoration of their soul. And if they reject you, then you take another. And if they reject the two of you, you take another. You take, the principle of Matthew is you take whatever weight you need to get the desired result, which is what? Restoration with Christ. Paul says, you have gathered in Christ. And now, if that does not occur and it does not bring the desired result, when you were assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and Jesus is present, And he's kind of presuming, I believe, those first steps. Then Paul says, secondly, after you've gathered in Jesus' name, deliver this person over to Satan. What does that mean? I think it means that you stop as a body, as a leadership, as a family. You choose to stop protecting this person from the consequences of their life. You recognize that this person is living in complete defiance to the word of God, to the wisdom of the body of Christ, to correction, to love, to confrontation. And in this text, I believe there's the inference That when you keep a person in the body of Christ, there's a spiritual protection that is happening. When they are in your home, there is a spiritual 
protection that comes under your house. Acts speaks of, and the whole house was sanctified. There is a spiritual authority that operates in your home. And there is an authority and a protection that happens in your home. And when you send them out, and when you push them out, there is an exposure. There is a vulnerability that they have to Satan. That when they are under the protective protection or the care of the church that they don't have. And Paul is saying, deliver them over. Expose them. Put them out. Stop enabling them. Very specifically, what does it look like? It may mean that you refuse to bail them out of jail. It may mean that you ask the person to move out of your home. It may mean that you commit the person to a treatment facility. It's not working in our house. You need to be in a treatment facility. You're not getting sober here. It may mean you can't work for us. You take advantage of us. It's not working here. It may mean we can no longer financially support you. A number of years ago, I remember being in a courtroom. And I remember this judge looking down at a mother. And the judge pleaded with his mom, do not take your son home. I plead with you. Do not take your son home. He needs to face the consequences of his life. And this mother stood up to this judge, cursed him out, told him where to go, and it wasn't heaven. Silenced her entire family, most notably her husband. walked out of that courtroom dragging her adult son she destroyed her son she destroyed him I'm not going to take away his volitional choices I'm not going to take away all of the choices he made that got him kicked out of high school, that got him kicked out of the Navy, that got him kicked out of every other institution that he was involved in. But there were so many times that there was a mother who refused to turn her son over to Satan. And he said, I could never do that. You will if you love him. You will if you love him. Because when believers are caught in sin, we must love them enough to confront them. And I can only think that if you won't confront them, you must, in the depth of your heart, hate them.
Because you have to know that every time you rescue them and every time you condone them and every time that you remedy their consequences and every time you soften their choices and every time you build a bridge to their sin and every time you put an arm around and they claim to walk with Christ and defy Christ and dishonor Christ and reject the word of God and you stand there, Paul says, and you're proud. My dear friends, you pour destruction into their heart. You fracture the church and worse, you discredit the cross of Christ. I'm pretty convinced that this woman that stood before this judge, she's probably saved. I think she was. And I know that it says that there's no tears in heaven. I'm not sure how it plays out. I really don't. How when she gets to heaven. And I'm sure that when I stand in heaven, there's going to be some correction. I'm sure the father's going to say, okay, Mark, I got a few thoughts for you. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. But when her son died, And he died a miserable death. And the funeral directors called me and said, would you like to take care of his funeral services? I thought of that day when she cursed out the judge. And I wish she could have been there to face that day. When believers are caught in sin, if you love them, you'll confront them. Why? That they may be destroyed in their flesh, that their spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. My friends, you confront them because you love them, and you love them with courage. There's some challenges, and let me close with this. There's some huge challenges. Number one, there's the challenge of the clarity of who we are to discipline. Paul goes into this in verse 9. He says, I've written you this letter not to associate with sexually immoral. And he says, I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about people who claim to be followers of Christ. I'm not talking about people who've rejected Christ. He goes, if you don't hang around people who are immoral, you're not going to hang around anyone. So, so, and that may seem hypocritical. And by the way, people have frequently thrown that back. And he goes, well, you, you'll hang around this person. Yeah, because they're not claiming to be a believer. And that may seem duplicit to you, but you have to get that clear in your mind. This instruction is to the person who claims to be a follower of Christ and is dishonoring the word of God. 
Another challenge is the history of the church and our abuse, uh, like the burning of witches and the KKK and Crusades and the Inquisition. All of those issues have muddied the water. And so we've moved ourselves to this period today where we are kind of just grace only, grace only. And, and we are much like those Canadian students. Are, and we're, who are we to judge? The problem is we don't mourn. And we aren't willing to draw the line and say when a family cuts the nose off of a young girl in her ears to say that's a moral outrage. And when a person is sleeping with his mom or when a person is walking in disobedience to God, we have no ability to say that's wrong. And it's not wrong because I want to be judgmental of you. It's wrong because it's destructive to your very life. Another problem we have is that we no longer have the church. It was a number of years ago here. There was a gentleman in our church that was, um, he had left his family, his wife and children. And he was uh, living with another girl, sleeping with her. And they were attending another church here in town. And so somebody told me where they were attending. And they even told me what pew they were sitting in. And so, well, that's weird. But... um, so I uh, called the pastor and I said, hey, um, I need your help. Um, got a guy that's uh, got a family in my church and, and uh, he's left them. They're not divorced and he's sleeping with a gal who attends your church and they're attending your church right now. Uh, can we get together and will you call those folks and let's meet together and kind of confront this? And uh, he said, well, I really don't have jurisdiction over them. And I was like, jurisdiction? It's like, you got the Bible. And uh, I mean, it's like they're sitting in your church and what more do you need? Well, he's not an official member. And I was like, come on. It's like, you know, he goes, if he sits under my preaching, he'll hear the word of God. And it's like, how long is this going to take? Well, you know, he'll hear it over the, the next few months. It's like months their, their family's going to be wrecked in months. We don't have that kind of time. And, and he stalled it and hung up. The fact is, is in Corinth, when Paul said, put them out of the church, there wasn't another church to go to. Here, if they leave our church, they got 99 other churches they can go to. And they usually do. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything. It doesn't mean that we're the church that does church discipline for everybody. No, no, that's not the point. But the point is, is in your family, in our lives, we might have to do that. And we do it not because we want to be the church that does church discipline. No one wants to be that church. But you do it because you love them. And in fact, if you don't do it, I would surmise you really have to hate them. And last, for which sins should we pursue church discipline? That's tough because the sexual sins are easy. Cocaine, that's easy. You know, drug addiction, that's easy. Gossip, eh, we'll kind of give that one a pass. Galatians 5 doesn't. Galatians 5 puts orgies and gossip right together. It's kind of awkward. Because we were like orgies. Whoo, bad news. If our kids are doing orgies, I mean, the pastor gets called. If kids are doing gossip, we're like, oh, kids will be kids. The Bible puts those two together. So sometimes we get a little inconsistent and we need to be, I think, a little bit more honest 
about um, calling a spade a spade. When believers are caught in sin, we must love them enough to confront them. Because if we don't, my surmise is we really hate them. But understand that when we do it, sometimes, oftentimes, there's something really beautiful on the other side. Pastor Herschel York got a letter one time from a lady in, uh, who told him about um, Doreen and Bob. Bob left Doreen and moved in with another lady. And uh, she thought um, Pastor York would want to know about this because Bob used to be one of his deacons in a church that he was pastoring years ago. So Pastor York called Doreen and said, Doreen, is it true that Bob is left you? And she said, yeah, he did. We're not divorced, but he left and he moved in with this gal. Pastor York said, do you have the phone number for this woman's house? And she said, yeah, I do. So he said, can I have it? And she goes, yeah. So he called. The woman answered the phone and he said, hey, is Bob there? And she said, well, who is this? And he said, well, tell him it's his old pastoral friend, Herschel York. I'm sure he'll want to talk to me. (laughs) He could hear Bob in the back kind of clearing his throat. Not sure he wanted to talk to him, but he did. Herschel starts off and he goes, Bob, what are you doing? Why are you there? And Bob responds, probably like a lot of us would. I just can't live anymore. It's, it's just one way. I keep trying. She doesn't, she's not thankful. She never says thanks. It's a one-way street. I serve. She doesn't do anything. She's critical of everything I do. You know the normal stuff. And then he finishes with this. I mean, what do you expect me to do? When all I get is criticism and I'm never thanked for anything I do. Pastor York says, this is what I expect you to do. I expect you to make an unwavering commitment and obedience to Christ. That's what I expect you to do. When I hang up, I want you to tell this young lady that you're with goodbye. I want you to get in your car and I want you to go home and get your wife. And I want you to drive up to Lexington, Kentucky. And I want you to spend the weekend with my wife and I. And we're going to pour over the scriptures as to what God wants you to do. Bob, that's what I expect. And Bob did that. Bob went home, grabbed his wife. And they drove up to Lexington and they spent three days with their friend and pastor. Three weeks later, they came back to Lexington with their two children at the request of the two of them. And they came up and they said to Pastor York, would you marry us again? We want to repeat our vows And we want to start afresh. Doreen took Herschel aside. And she said, if anyone had ever told me that marriage and life could be this good, I would have never believed it. Thank you.
for making the phone call. When believers are caught in sin, you don't call them to scold them. You call them because you love them. You call them because your heart's broken for them. You call them to confront them because you want them to enjoy their life. Because if you don't call them, I can only surmise that you have to hate them. And I can't believe that you do.